This morning, if you have your Bibles with you in whatever format, uh, you might want to turn to the book of Daniel. You're going like, where's Daniel? Well, let me tell you, here's my Bible. And if I open up to Daniel, it's a little bit past halfway, okay? That gives you a starting point, okay, with Daniel. Uh, we're going to actually going to hang out in Daniel for several weeks. The, the thing about Daniel is this. Daniel is a book of paradox. It's, it's, I don't know, it's made up of two different parts almost. And if you've ever studied Daniel, you understand that. But the first six chapters of Daniel, most of you probably, if you grew up in a church and you went to Sunday school, you probably know the stories in the first six chapters. Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach. Yeah, that's the Babylonian names of the guys, okay? Uh, you know, so uh, you know those, and you know the, those several stories in there. But the, so the thing about it is the first six chapters are simple stories of faith under pressure. We're going to kind of hang out a lot there uh, for the next several weeks because uh, it tells the stories of Daniel and his three friends, and they've been forced to leave their homeland, uh, Israel, uh, settle in the Babylonian king's palace. Uh, they're compelled to learn new languages, uh, to learn new customs. Uh, and each chapter brings, of the first six chapters of Daniel, brings new uh, challenges. And each time, uh, these young men rise to the challenge. Um, Neither Daniel nor his three friends waver in their faith, so it's a great story of faith. We're going to be looking at that. But the interesting thing is most of us know these stories because they're such simple stories. Now, the last six chapters of Daniel are totally different. Man, the first six are about Daniel's uh, things that Daniel and his friends encountered. The last six chapters are visions that God gave Daniel. And so we're not going to probably spend a whole lot of time in there because we'll be... The first six chapters kids can understand. The last six chapters, theologians scratch their head at, and they can't figure out exactly. They'll, they'll argue about them and whatever. So not that we're not going to look at them at all, but we're going to look at them very simply, a kind of overview toward the end of this series. Now, the reality is this. Regardless of how the, they fit together, the first six chapters and the last six chapters, the, the message of the book of Daniel is uniform throughout. And the message is this. Uh, in spite of present appearances, God is in control. That's the message of Daniel. God is in control. And, and, I, and I believe that over the next few weeks, as we look at these simple stories of faith, as we examine what, what they are, what they'll do is they'll encourage us to realize that regardless of your circumstances, that how things appear around you, that God is in control. And so we'll be looking at that. Um, I, I love the way da it says it multiple times in Daniel, but in one of the locations, it kind of talks about this. It says in Daniel 5.21, the Most High, talking about God, rules in the kingdom of men. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men. That's kind of the, the, the thesis of the book of Daniel. And so this morning we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about, in a, in a real sense, uh, and this is going to be something that runs throughout this, this series, um, two tests in life that we encounter. The two tests in life that we encounter are the test of adversity and the test of prosperity. That's, that's tests that we go through in life. Uh, the challenge, of course, with a test of adversity is not to give in to despair, uh, not to doubt God's love, his power, and his presence in our life when we go through tough times. The challenge of the test of prosperity is not to forget God and, and not to become self-sufficient and, and proud. Now, confessional. In my own life, Thinking about these two tests, 
Uh, it seems to be that my life is in a constant state of flux between the two. Uh, when things are bad, uh, sometimes I struggle. And when things are good, sometimes I forget God. I wish I could say that everything is perfect all the time. I, you know, because I believe that God is a God of love. And, and as my loving Father, I believe that God is always looking out for my best. And I believe that God is with me all the time. Um, that there is never a moment when I'm alone. I believe that fully. And I believe these and other attributes of God are true. Yet, during moments of adversity in my life, I find my faith diluted by doubt. And sometimes I'm even tempted to despair. And then at other times in my life, um, when things are going good, I feel an ever so subtle shift in my heart away from depending on God toward a sense of self-sufficiency. And so I wonder, and this is something I think that I wonder that if you wonder about this, why is it that God has my undivided attention when I go through times of adversity? yet barely gets a nod from me in times of prosperity. Why is that true? Good thing to think about. So, is it possible then to go through life without the major swings from one side to the other? Well, as we look at Scripture, and this is one of the reasons we're studying the book of Daniel, Daniel was just a person just like us. You know, the thing about Scripture, I think it's so incredible, is that there's no superheroes in Scripture. There are no Avengers. <laughs> I mean, how many of you like that, Avengers? I mean, you would like to be one of those Avengers? I like to be. You know, some of you are like, no, the pastor's weird. He's the only one here that wants to be a superhero. But, uh, you know, we, I love those movies. I'm looking forward to the next one when it comes out. You know, I think it's so cool, you know, to be a superhero. You know, whatever power you have, you know, Captain America. Iron Man. I like to be Iron Man. That'd be so cool. Fly. No, there's none of those people in Scripture. Not one place. Maybe Jesus is the closest to a superhero you find in Scripture. I mean, it is pretty cool that Jesus is God and has power over everything. I would call that a superhero, but not in the way we think of it. But the reality is everybody else in Scripture is just normal, everyday people with the ups and downs of life. They're not superheroes. And the Bible tries to try to make them to turn out to be that way. In Daniel, though, we will see that he was a normal person just like us. And he was tested by the test of adversity and prosperity, yet he was able to remain, and this is a big word, resolute. Resolute in his faith and relationship with God. I learned that word when I was reading one of the commentaries I read for this series. Uh, there's a guy named Warren Wiersbe, and it's one of the three or four commentaries I was reading. He has a whole series of commentaries called B, the B series, and it's got B strong, B faithful, B this. And his commentary on the book of Daniel is called B resolute. I had to look up what that meant. I don't know if you, maybe, maybe you're just smarter than I am. I don't know. But resolute, basically, basically it means this. It means unyielding, unwavering, and persevering. So Daniel was a normal person just like that, and he seemed to be unwavering, uh, unwavering uh, unyielding, and persevering in his relationship with God. And how did he do it? We'll look at that over the next several weeks as we look through this as well. And, Dan, and, and the thing is, we're going like, well, Daniel lived in a different time. Well, today's society is a good deal like the one Daniel lived in, in some ways. He lived in a century, centuries ago, when people were trying to push their way, and we'll see this in the story today, 
their way of living and get everybody to conform to their way of living. The world doesn't do that today to us, does it? I mean, try to push us into. I love the way that J.B. Phillips. J.B. Phillips is a is is a is a writer, and he's he, he did a translation of the New Testament called the J.B. Phillips translation. And he says in Romans, he, he says about Romans twelve two about this. He says, "Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own own mold." I think it's a great translation. That's what what the Bible's talking about. Paul was talking about. And the thing is, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. And Daniel and his friends obeyed that admonition, as we see in Scripture. And so it means it's possible for us to live that way as well. Now, we're not going to look at them as the models of this, because they weren't the ones who did it. God did through them. And so we'll look at that through this whole thing. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, we're going to look at the whole book today, the whole book, the whole chapter today, and I'm going to read through some scripture, and then we're going to talk about what it means for us in regards to understanding. Now, the interesting thing about Daniel chapter 1, it's kind of a really unique chapter that it kind of like sets the tone for, uh, and it kind of identifies what we're going to be talking about in this whole book. Um, When I was in school, um, professors there, especially in college, when they teach you about writing, they would say that what you do in a good paper is you do this. You always tell them what you're going to tell them in the introduction. Then what do you do next? Then you tell them. Then you tell them what you told, tell, tell them what, uh, what you told them. You go back and review again. That's a good paper. And in a sense, that's exactly what this, this first chapter of Daniel does. It begins and ends with a marker that identifies the beginning and the end of Daniel's career. It actually tells us you know, how long he served and what he did. And, and we can know it historically because it mentions historical figures. It says in chapter, uh, verse 1, it says the third year, it says uh, this, this happened when they were brought into captivity. Uh, these young guys were the third year of the reign of this guy named Jehoiakim. Now, I probably mispronounced his name like four times a day, but Jehoiakim. And it says that's the beginning of the third year of his reign. And, and it says, and he con- continued to... to uh, uh, serve and to continue to serve the kingdom of Babylon and other kingdoms through the first year in verse 21 of the ki- of King Cyrus. So in knowing that, right in the very first chapter, what it does, it identifies, it bookmarks in a sense when this took place historically. It, it begins in terms of our dating system. This places Daniel's career from somewhere around 605 B.C. to around 539 B.C. Remember, when you're talking about B.C., it's backwards, okay? 605 is before 539, okay, B.C. And in Daniel 1, it provides an introduction for the whole book. It plunges us quickly into the action, introduces us to the main characters that we'll be talking about for the next several chapters, and, and it also gives us the overarching theme of the book, which is this, God is in control. So let's look at this this morning. Let's read a few through verses, uh, a couple of verses, and then we'll talk about it. Uh, verse 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, this is a lot of big words, by the way, okay? So if you don't pronounce them right, just make it up. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, okay? This is what it says, though. Listen carefully, verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Now, what do we learn there, the first couple of verses? 
For decades, now to put this in historical perspective, in biblical perspective, for decades, prophets have been saying to the Israelites, if you do not get your act together, if you do not quit offering sacrifices to idols, not to the true God, God is going to do something and he's going to allow you to be overtaken by somebody else. God is going to do it. He's going to open the doors for this to happen. And so there should have been no surprise at this point in the history of the nation of Israel that it happens, that that it says in verse 2 that who allows it to happen? The Lord. The Lord God allowed this to happen. You're going like, I thought the book was about God being in control. Yeah, it is about God being in control. Because God had made a covenant with the people. And what was the covenant with the people of Israel? You follow me, and I'll be there for you. But you turn away and start following other idols, I'm going to allow others to overcome you. Because the reality is this. God, after he made this covenant, the reality is that God, is, it's, more, it's more important to him that his people follow him than simply be safe in their homeland and follow idols. And so he allows this to happen. God is in control. Number one, he, he, he keeps his covenant with his people. God doesn't say, hey, you know, you just do whatever you want to and, and, and then I'll just be there for you and I'll pat you on the back and say, oh, good job, you know, even though they're worshiping idols and doing all, no, God isn't, isn't that kind of God. See, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. And so he does that in the first couple, talks about that in the first couple of verses. It's interesting to me that when I read this, that God is so wise and powerful that he can permit men and women to make personal choices and still accomplish his purposes in the world. He lets us make personal choices, but he will still accomplish his purposes in the world. When he isn't permitted to rule, he will overrule. But his will shall ultimately be done and his name glorified. See, we serve a serve and worship a sovereign God who was never caught by surprise. Okay, verses 3 and 4. A little bit further. Then the king, after these people, uh, the the king of Judah was overcome and all the people were, uh, all the stuff was taken out of the temple. Then verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. These were people that were the upper level, the people from from that household of the Israelites. He says, do this. They have to be like this, verse 4. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. One of the things that's interesting in Scripture is you'll see all kinds of different variations of how people, when they overcome a nation, how they would deal with the people that they overcame. But in, in, in this nation, King Nebuchadnezzar, his deal was this. Let's take the best from the people, the best of the best from the people that we conquer, bring them in, and begin, in a sense, to brainwash them so that they can begin to follow our plan. They can become Babylonians. Let's teach them our language, our culture, all these things, our religion, and all these things. And so Daniel and his three friends were some of the best of the best from the nation of Israel. They were people who were, who were probably... Uh, from, from what we know, uh, from what it says in Scripture, uh, they were probably around 15 or 16 years old when they were taken captive, uh, and, 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 and they were brought in 
to be trained to be actually part of the king's administration, to actually work with him because Nebuchadnezzar thought that that would be something that would be helpful. Now, let me say this. Daniel and his friends were what, if you look throughout the Bible, were what we'd be called part of the Jewish remnant. That means that it was always, the people of, Jewish people were always, if you read the Old Testament, it's, it's a cycle of serving God, falling away from God, serving God, falling away from God, constantly being conquered, constantly being, you know, getting back on track with God. And it would happen in cycles throughout history. But there was always a remnant of faithful Jewish people who still served God, even when everybody else was turning away. And at this point in time, the religious leaders and historical leaders, of the, the national leaders of Israel and of Judah had fallen away from God. But there was this remnant of people. And God continued to bless and, and use this remnant of people to continue the process of helping him to carry out his plan. So Daniel and his three friends were what I believe were a part of this faithful Jewish remnant in Babylon, placed there by the Lord to accomplish his purposes, because we will see that over the next few weeks as we read through and, and study this passage. Okay, uh, verses 4 through 7, or uh, no, actually 5 through 7. The king assigned them, after he brought them in to teach them language and literature, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And they were to be trained for three years. That's a good long training period. And after they, that, they were to enter the king's service. Among them were some, were some from Judah. Uh, and, and their names were, this is important, their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which we know as... We still know Daniel is Daniel, even though his name was changed. We usually know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, I've always asked this question. I grew up in Sunday school, literally. I spent my whole life in church. You know, I don't know if it's good or bad. You know, learned some good things, some bad things too. But the thing is, every time I was taught this story, I was, we always used the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I didn't even, until later on when I was an adult, started reading the story for myself, that I realized that those were Babylonian names and not, not, the, not the, na the Hebrew names they were given. Why was that true? And, and you're going like, well, what you making a big deal out of names? How many of you named your kid, for the, the name that you gave your kids had something to do with, the, the name meant something, like it, it told us something about their kids? Anybody do that? A few of you did, like three. Okay. <laughs> In this day and age, when they did this, names meant something. Names described who the people were. So, let's look at what the names meant that they had and the names that were changed to. Daniel, which is the name that he actually was his Hebrew name, means God is my judge. But the Babylonian name that he was given is the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect his life. Who is Bel? Bel was a Babylonian god. Okay, so they give him, go from a name that's about the true God, God is my judge, to the name about, they, they changed his name because they were going like, we don't want him to follow that God anymore, we don't want him to follow one of our gods. Then all the other gods, Hananiah, his name meant the Lord shows grace, was changed to Shadrach, the one we always know, and it means command of Aku. Aku is another Babylonian God. Then the guy named Mishael, his name means who is like God. His name was changed to Meshach. 
And, his, and, and this is the hard one that he said, who is as Aku is? I mean, I, that's a really a mouthful. You know, and that's what his name meant, Aku. And once again, that's saying Babylonian God. Then Azariah, his name meant the Lord is my help. His name was changed to Abednego. And his name means servant, this new name means servant of Nebo, which is another Babylonian God. And so their names, not only were they trying to change you know, changed their teachings and changed the way they saw life for three years, teaching them about culture, customs, all these things. They wanted to change who they were. And names in that day and age were names that meant something to them. So this was a big deal in Scripture here. And so when we see this, you see the name of the true and living God was replaced by names of the false gods of Babylon. And we, but, you know, what do we expect from unbelievers? Uh, so learning a new language and even receiving new names didn't create much of a problem, it didn't seem, uh, for these guys, for these young men. But it came to something really interesting in verse 8 that, uh, that happens to them, um, that here they had to draw the line. There comes a place in time for the believers to say, these, these followers of God, the true God, to say, okay, I'll change my name, I'll listen to your teaching, I'll do all this, but there's a place that comes a line. And the line that's drawn is a kind of a strange line for us. Because we don't think this way. This is a Jewish, uh, a Jewish way of thinking. And what happened was, in verse 8, we read these words, 8 through 16. But Daniel, anytime there's a but, it means a man, there's something getting ready to happen. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he, uh, should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that with the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the, and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now, before I talk about this, let me talk about one way I've heard this totally misinterpreted. I've known people before to take this and miss the whole point of this because what they do is they talk about, well, this is all about being a vegetarian. And they'll take this scripture out of context and say, well, this is all about that. This scripture has nothing to do with vegetarianism. That was just one thing. Let me tell you something, folks. I mean, the point of this whole story is about God is in control. And, you know, you know it probably is healthier to eat that kind of food, then well, you can imagine what the king's food was like. He probably had a five-star chef making food, you know? He probably had the best wine that was anywhere in the kingdom. It says, he, you know, they ate at the king's table. And they probably, man, it would be like, you know, eating, having, you know, I don't know who, who I don't know, the greatest chef in the world, you know? I, I, I don't really, I'm not really into fancy stuff. I'd rather have Bobby Flay make my food, you know? But uh, grill me something or whatever, you know? But the, but the reality is, is that, you know, they probably had some incredible food. But what it was, it wasn't about the food. It was about following Jewish customs and the Jewish custom that there were certain food. And we don't follow these nowadays. I mean, most of us does not follow Jewish customs in regard to food. 
I mean, this afternoon, uh, for Father's Day, my wife's taking me to Biagi's. Okay? I'm not going to worry about, you know, eating food with, uh, with the blood removed. Ste- steak is never better unless it's rare. Okay? And so I'm not going to worry about that. For me, that doesn't make any sense. But for these young men, they had grown up in a culture where these were things you did to honor God. Okay? So it was about honoring God and following his plan. And it came to a point in time when they said, like, okay, you can change your name. There's nothing in Scripture in our culture that says about changing names are wrong. I don't like the new name. You know, it doesn't really honor God, but, you know, it's not something... Uh, I can learn stuff. There's nothing in my culture that says I can't learn stuff that's outside of what it is that I've learned. But you come to a point in time where he says that now you've got to eat stuff, and all the time you've got to eat stuff that goes against what God has said that you do to honor me. And so they, they, drew, they drew the line here. That's what this is all about. And, and so uh, they, they were trying to be, what, what I think Daniel and his friends saw, is they were trying to be squeezed into a mold that comes to a point where you say enough, is enough. And for some reason, this, this thing with the food became, becomes that thing. See, Daniel and his free, three, uh, three friends weren't people who conformed, but they, they were transformers. Uh, the question for many of us is this, how can God's people resist the pressures that can squeeze us into conformity in the world. Because conformers are people who get squeezed or controlled by the pressure from without outside. And the transformers are people who, whose lives are controlled by power within. And the reason that's true, and we're going to talk about this throughout, is that Daniel and his friends had made a decision. They made a decision. See, the first step in solving the problem about am I going to be somebody who lives for God or am I going to be somebody who doesn't, is that transformers are people who give themselves fully to God. Not partially. It's not about just simply showing up at church on Sunday mornings and the rest of the week I forget about God. It's about giving yourself fully to God. And they had made that decision in their life, these four young men had made this decision in their life uh, sometime in their life growing up, and they're only in their teens. But it was a decision that shaped everything they did from that day on. Daniel's heart, the totality of his being, belonged to the Lord, as did the hearts of his friends. It says that in uh, um, it talks about that in Scripture later on in Scripture this morning. But the thing is this, is that that's the first thing. See, so often we believe that faith is uh, believing in spite of evidence. I've heard that before. Believing is, faith is believing in spite of evidence. That's superstition. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. You can believe all kind of weird stuff, but it's not, if you don't obey what you believe, then you don't really have faith. And so what it is is that these young men came to a place in their life because they made this decision to follow God, to follow Him with their whole heart. They came to a place in saying that this is enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. I will, I will do it. But let me, let me tell you, how they did it was just as important as what they did. Because the second step to be great, the second step to be a person who transforms people and transforms cultures is not only do we have we draw the line somewhere. The second step was to be gracious towards those in authority. Will you notice how they approached this? They didn't go up. They didn't. They didn't have a, a, a sit-in. They didn't burn a building. They didn't do any of the crazy things sometimes Christians in our world today do because they oh, I, I believe in you know, and they, and they do this stuff. No, what did they do? You notice the four men, they went, they noticed that this one guy 
Ashpenaz, who was uh, one of the king's uh, servants, uh, he had been friendly to them and kind to them. They noticed that. They were aware of that. And, and, and what they did is that instead of expecting him, this Gentile officer, to obey the law of Moses and get himself in trouble with the king, Daniel and his friends had this wise thing they did. And they took a wise approach and asked for a 10-day experiment. It's kind of like what it says in, in, uh, in, in Proverbs 6, 16, 7. It says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's not one of the things we often read a lot of times, but that's the truth. He says, sometimes we, we just have to be careful about it. So, you know, speak the truth, but you do it in love. Okay? We need to remember that because sometimes we do more damage than good by speaking truth. But we've got to do it in love. And that's what Daniel and his friends did. They were aware of this guy. They, they asked him, he said, give us a, give us a chance. Uh, uh, do this 10-day experiment. They said, let us see. Let us visibly see what will happen. And throughout Scripture, you can find courageous people who had to defy authority in order to obey God. And in every case, they took the wise and gentle approach. I mean, Romans 12, 18 says this. If it's, it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We have a responsibility. So the, the four Jewish students didn't threaten anybody, didn't stage a protest, do any of these things. They simply excelled in their studies, acted like gentlemen. They asked the court officials to test them for 10 days by feeding them only water and vegetables. And then he said, at the end of those 10 days, we'll see what God does. See, it's about God. It's not about your diet. It's about God. God could have... I, you know, I believe that God's powerful enough. If, if he had told them, you know, for the next 10 days, let's all eat Twinkies. And let's see, if God had told him that, no, no, God wouldn't do that because God knows Twinkies are bad for us. But the thing is, you know, if he had done that, it's about trusting in God's plan for our life. You see the difference here? The reality is, is that the point of the story, it's not about food, it's about trusting God. And these young men, because they've been raised this way, said this is the way you honor God, and if you trust God, you'll honor God, then, then test us in this, and we'll see how, what God does. And at the end of the 10 days, what happened? It says that they look better than the other guys. They get all the rich food and, and, and all th those things. It's about God being in control. God used these young men and their faith to get the point across and begin to change a culture. And an interesting thing about this as well in the first chapter, this is just the first chapter of 12. The Lord used this private test to prepare Daniel and his friends for the public test they were to face in the years to come. The best thing about this experience wasn't that they were delivered from compromise, and that was great, that's wonderful, but that they were developed in character. Now the last few verses in, in, in Daniel simply says this, in verse 17, verse 17, it says, to these uh, four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God did this. God, God is the one who did this. Now, does it mean, uh, well, if I just pray hard enough that God will give me wisdom, I don't have to actually study for a test? No. God wants you to use what he has given you. You still study for the test, and you still pray that God would get, help you to be to be to use what he's the things that you have uh, that you're doing in your life to to glorify him to bring glory to him. But the thing is, it says, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Hold on to that because in the next few weeks we're going to talk about that was a huge thing that God did in his life. 
Not everybody could do that as well. God used this because, once again, it's about God being in control, God using these young men in a tremendous way to reshape a culture. Then in verse 18, 19, and 20, we read these, these words. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that they entered the king's service. And, in, and this is interesting, verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. These young men, they studied, they, 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 they still stuck with God, but they excelled. And it was God that gave them the ability to do this. But, you know, sometimes people have all kinds of abilities, but they don't use it for God. And when they don't use it for God, you know, they really don't stand. These young men stood out because God wanted to use them to change the direction of what was going to happen years later. And then verse 21, it ends up in the chapter, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Uh, probably this, a span of, of about 80 plus years. God gave Daniel a long life. And, and a long ministry. Does it mean that if you follow God, you have a long life? Now there's other people in Scripture like, like uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, other people in Scripture who, uh, who didn't live as long. Uh, uh, Paul only lived um, uh, till maybe early 60s. Um, Stephen was killed probably at an early age following God. But the reality is, is that God used him as he opened himself up to him. And, but the thing is interesting here. He was still, notice something, he was used by God, God was in control, but where was, where was Daniel still at after all these years? Still in Babylon. He eventually got to, hopefully, I, we believe he actually was able to go back, because the king of Persia is actually the one that sent the people back to, uh, the promise, back to, the, to Israel. But he was still there, and you're going like, well, you know, if this was really, if this was really, you know, God is in control, wouldn't he have just rescued him and made Israel everything perfect? And now the, the purpose that God is in control is that he wants to lead us to where he, where he wants us to be. And it's not about the location physically, but it's about our location of our heart. And, and God is working in us. And it's kind of like, I, I thought it'd be cool at the end times. I think Daniel could have said the same thing about his life, his, his epitaph, could have seen the same thing that Jesus said in John 17, 4. Daniel could have said this to God. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given to me to do. I want that on my tombstone. I don't, probably don't have a tombstone because I'm going to be cremated, and you can come and talk to me about that later. But the reality is, after my wife uh, scatters my ashes on the Appalachian Trail, um, <clears throat> she said Hawaii. But uh, I said the Appalachian Trail. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, that's, that's the thing you want to have on your, on your tombstone. I have glorified you on this earth, God. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Period. End of story. And Daniel could do that. And all the time that that was true, the thing is true, is that God was in control, but it wasn't in a perfect world that we would call a perfect world because he never got out of captivity during all this time. But he served God fully during all this time. So it kind of blows away our idea that if you follow God, everything will be as wonderful and happy in your life. It'll be like going to Disney World. 
No. God is more concerned with our character than he is with our comfort. He'll take us, let us go places, and he'll sometimes take us places that will grow us up. And Daniel and his friends could never have been, this, probably never have had the same impact on culture if they'd have stayed in Israel than they would have in Babylon. But they changed some huge things. So, as we close, let me just say this. Every believer is either one of two things. They're either a transformer or a conformer. They're either a person that's being squeezed into the world's mold or we're transforming things in the world around us which God has put around us. Transformers, let me say this, transformers don't always have an easy life. But it's an exciting one. And it gives us great delight if you're a transformer to know that God is using you to influence others. And that is the greatest thing that you could possibly use your life for. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love and your goodness. We pray this morning that as we close this service, as we go our separate ways and go out into the world, that what you would do, God, is you would help us to understand that you are in control. It may not seem like it from a physical standpoint when there's, we're going through some difficult times, but God, the reality is, is that you want to shape us and mold us and use us to influence things around us. And, and, and in Daniel's life, the thing that we can learn is this, is that you can be even a captive in a, in a country far away from home and be right in the center of God's will. As long as your heart is open to what God wants you to do and you're open to following and obeying him, and if you do so, God will use that to influence others for him, to bring him glory. And that's what this whole thing is about in Daniel. It's not about Daniel and his friends being perfect people or great people, even though they do some incredible things we're going to read about here. It's because they trusted in you. And because they trusted in you, we still read about them today, and we're still amazed at what they did through that trust and faith. Guide us this week, God, that all we do and say would just honor you no matter what the circumstances of the week. Maybe in spite of the circumstances of the week. Thank you, God, for your incredible love and your goodness to us and guide us now this week and always say and do. Help us to be people who are transformers and not simply people who are conformed and molded by the world because, God, that's what you want us all to be, a transformer for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.